So uh, here we are, Sunday, and we're in this series, Misunderstanding the Bible. And what we're talking about is not, um, it's, it's, it's so much more than just simply, well, this is, uh, this is the Bible and we should read it and it's very important for your life and, uh, you know, amen, let's go home, let's go get lunch. No, 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 we're, we're this series is a deep dive into th- not, not, even, not even like the theology of the Bible, though we will uh, certainly uh, look at that, but, but also like the kind of the, the entire like totality of what we call the Bible, how we got it and, and how we should read it and how we should understand it, how we should not understand it and, and, and uh, misconceptions we have. So um, last week we, we started with what we called the foundation of this series with the, really the foundation of the Bible. Um, and we talked about um, specifically like how we got it. Like, did it just come from the sky and just land on our lap? Like, hey, here's this book. Hey, this is a pretty cool book. Um, was it just, just just given to certain authors? And then they're just like, oh, well, wonderful. We have this, this thing. We don't know where it came from, but man, this is good stuff. And, or, or what we saw was like, it wasn't, it wasn't just given to, it didn't just fall from the sky, but it was, it took, it was like, there was some painstaking detail putting this thing together. And we looked at um, uh, last week, even uh, other religious books, at least we talked about them. We'll do it again this morning. But, um, but every, every religion, every kind of faith has a book. And this is ours. And, and last week we talked about how we, ha- like how we know this is the right one, that there are 66 books in here. How do we know that we got the right ones? How do we know that there are other ones that should be and that got excluded or, or that, there, that like, like this, this is what was meant to be? This morning, we're not gonna address the, uh, the question. We looked at the question of how we got it. Now we're gonna address another one that it seems like a really straightforward, simple answer until you look at the specifics and the details and you realize, oh, this really is intricate and detailed and it isn't as straightforward as you would think. And what do you know, there's disagreement amongst like people within the faith about how we should answer this question. Here's the question. Who wrote the Bible? That seems like an easy one. Except when you realize and start to understand we have this book and not a single word was written by God. Every word in here was written down by a person. Every word was written by a man. So how do we then, how do we then think about or even discuss this is the word of God, yet, yet it was written by men? When we look at other faiths, we look at um, um, within uh, Islam, the Quran is their holy book. And it was, it, it, came to, it came solely from Muhammad. And he didn't write it down, but um, the, the way the story goes is that he was approached and by the angel Gabriel over, I think, 23-year period at different ports, uh, like portions, different parts of his life, and then was dictated what, what, like, what the Quran would be. And then other people around him would write that down as he's like reciting it because he actually couldn't write. Um, but it came from him. So the whole thing came from, from Muhammad. In, in, uh, in Mormonism, the Book of Mormon um, comes solely from a guy named Joseph Smith who kind of started that faith movement. And, and he didn't write it, but he says he, he, uh, he, was, um, he discovered, he was told where, these, where it was buried and he, and he uh, discovered it and then translated it. And that became 
the Book of Mormon, but again, came from one person. And, and so now we have this book and we realize, okay, this, this wasn't from any one person. There's over 40 authors, three languages, um, uh, over 1500 plus years, multiple continents, three, like, like three languages. I don't remember I said that. And, and so we say, okay, this isn't just like someone sat down and put this together. We call this God's word, but yet not, not any of it was written by God, but all, every word was written down by a man. But then we see also in, in Christianity that God becomes a man. So we're like, okay, that makes sense. But that God-man also didn't write a single word in the Bible. I remember when I, so I didn't grow up a Christian, so when I became a Christian and started reading the Bible, I had no understanding what it was. I knew the name Jesus. I knew like there was this thing called the Bible and I had no idea what was in it. I thought, honestly, honestly, I thought that this was, like all the other religions, this was a book written by Jesus. And then I become a Christian and, and they said, oh no, actually none of it was written by Jesus. And my first thought, you know, my first thought was, well, Jesus, that's kind of an oversight, man. You should have wrote some of it down. Like you could have wrote some cool stuff. What happened? So when we call this the word of God, yet God didn't author a single word of it, how, how can we answer this question, who wrote it? Because all of it, all of the ink was printed here and was originally written down by a person. How do we know they got it right? And this is usually where critics or skeptics or uh, those like people will go and say, listen, as much as you call it the word of God, like people wrote this and, and we all know people make mistakes. There's not a single perfect person ever. We don't like, so how, do, how can you claim that this is God's word when people who make mistakes wrote it. This morning there, we'll answer that question. Who wrote the Bible? And how much of it was, uh, was like people? How much of it was God? And what is that process by which it came about? So we're gonna jump in. We got a, a lot to cover. As, as, as simple as that question is, man, there is a lot of like details and, and like avenues we can go. And so what we're gonna look at this morning are two important theological words and they, they're two I words. They start with I. Last week, the word that you had to learn was this word canon and not like cannonball canon, like fire a cannon, but canon meaning measuring rod. And it literally refers to the totality of scripture, all 66 books. So that the canon is, it begins with Genesis, ends with Revelation, and it's how we got the canon or the library. We called it like the bookshelf. And like canon is the bookends to this bookshelf of this is it. So this morning, we're looking at two words. Here they are. I'll give them to you up front, and then we're going to look at each one. We're going to look at inspiration and inerrancy. These are two words that maybe you've heard before. Maybe you know. Maybe you have a little bit of understanding. Or maybe you, you're just like, I don't know what that is. And that's fine. Wherever you are, it's fine. But these are two words that you need to know. And not in a sense that like, when someone asks you, hey, um, tell, you read the Bible or you believe the Bible. Well, why? Well, inspiration and inerrancy, of course. Like, no, not because you need to just be, like, be able to berate people or just have all this like, wealth of information and just, just, just like throw it on them, but because you need to understand and internalize what those things mean. And, and, and to be confident and sure that like, okay, my understanding of inspiration and inerrancy they really do set the foundation for everything else I believe. 
as, whether you know it or not, they really do set up the rest of your faith. That if you get these wrong, then, then everything else is shaky. So we'll look at both of these and we'll see they go hand in hand. What you believe about one directly links to what you believe about the other. So let's start with inspiration. The inspiration of scripture. It answers this question. Where does scripture originate? Where does it start? Where does it begin? So an author, a prophet, an, an, an apostle, someone writes down scripture. Where did that begin? That is now the issue of inspiration. And what we see in scripture is that there is a specific mechanism that God puts in place by which he communicates what he wants to to people to write it down. A very specific like process that he sets up. And it's, and it's one that gives us like that it actually shows up in scripture and gives us some insight. So um, throughout, throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, what we see is phrases like this. The word of the Lord came to, and then, you know, so-and-so, a prophet or a king or, or you know, whomever. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so or the word of God came to, or, or they'll say the word of the Lord came to me when I was so-and-so in my room or when I was, uh, the, the word of the Lord came to me during this year of this guy's reign or whatever it is very specific instance where they say this thing happened and it came to me and and it's and it's it, it, like for us we we hear that and we say okay how 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 do how do you know that was true or accurate or trustworthy and and like how do we know you didn't just like like you didn't just feel a little off that day how do we know that you know like like you know, maybe, maybe lunch wasn't settling with, well with you and you had a feeling and you're like, oh, the, well, I think God's speaking to me because I'm feeling kind of different. Like, well, maybe, maybe you, you know, maybe you shouldn't have had Taco Bell that day. <laughs> I wonder if they had Taco Bell. Do you think they had Taco Bell? I would have not survived in the first century without Taco Bell. So how does this work? Here's what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy. He gives us the mechanism. And then Peter's going to give us additional insight into mechanism or process. Here's what he says. Paul writes, all scripture, we looked at this last week, but look, we're going to look at it again. All scripture is, here it is, ready? God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is an interesting passage because this, this phrase there, this God-breathe phrase, this is the only time it shows up in Scripture, and, and there's a good reason. This is the only time it shows up in Scripture because Paul made it up. He created a word. This wasn't a word that they knew or would have been using. It was a word he's like, how can I explain this process? He's like, ah, oh, this is like God just breathed it. All the Scripture, God breathed and is useful for us. He makes up this new word, and here's, here's this word, theonoustos, or, uh, and it's a compound word, so theo is short for theos, which is God, and then um, noustos is a, is a form of pneuma. Pneuma means, you probably, if maybe you know this word, it means spirit, but it also can be translated breath. So, so what he's saying here is that, that God, that, here's the process, ready? That God breathed it from himself. 
And in other um, uh, versions of Scripture or, tr- or translations of Scripture, it'll translate it as inspired by God. I believe the NASB translates it as not God-breathed. God-breathed is the literal, but they understand this means inspired by God. So he creates this word and says, this is the process by which all Scripture came to be that God breathed it. So humans received the word because God breathed it into human authors who then compose written texts in a way that was so effective and so specific that what they wrote down was, was considered divine words from God. Hence, we call it the word of God. Though they wrote it down, it began its origin in God himself breathing it into them. Peter gives us some additional insight. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this. He's going to tell us now, here's this, this God-breathing thing. Here's like a little bit more specific of how it happened. Above all, you, you must understand, like above all means like of um, utmost importance, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. That they weren't like reading the times and then writing stuff down. Well, it seems to be like, or this seems, I think that this thing might happen next or... I think God might want us to say this. No, no, this was not their own understanding. For prophecy, he says, never had its origin in, in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God. And here it is. Here's how. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us that these divinely, uh, divinely authored utterances, they never originated with human imagination or intuition, but rather men who were moved by the Holy Spirit, God breathed this into them and they wrote it down. This is what we, refer, what we mean when we refer to as inspiration. So taking these two passages together, one author, he writes this, a guy named uh, Michael Bird, a theologian and, a, and a, a Christian author, he writes, scripture itself is a revelation since God inspired his word into human subjects who were carried along by the Holy Spirit's influence to write a divinely given message. He kind of summarizes, this is the process of how it happened. Now, that's what happened, but how do we know that this is trustworthy? How, like specifically, how much of this was them being inspired or influenced and how much of them, this was just them writing stuff. And this is now where things kind of like will tend to kind of take different, different options because there's much dis- discussion, much disagreement amongst like Christianity throughout the 2000 years since the kind of the, the finalizing of the Bible that people have been debating and discussing how does this work? And, and here's what we'll see. Um, everyone believes, in, like at least if, like all Christians, you believe in inspiration of some kind at some, it, like, at some level that God somehow initiated and wanted like people to write stuff down. And then what happens is we disagree on what that looks like. And, and so we, I liken it to kind of like a tree. We, have, we all have a trunk where we say we believe in inspiration. And yes, we're, we all sign on and say, yes, thumbs up. Okay. And then what happens is now when we get to the details of inspiration and then eventually inerrancy, there's different branches you can take now that, that take you different routes. So we all believe in inspiration, but if you believe option one, it'll take you this way. If you believe in option two, it'll take you this way, three and four. And depending on the one that you're convinced of, it will, it will put you at a different spot than other, pre, other Christians. Your understanding of, it, of inspiration and inerrancy will be different because you, you pick a different path. So here's some of the options, the inerrancy like perspectives of, um, of um, uh, 
that like uh, that people have throughout time have come down have, have come down on. Here's what the first one. And and we'll I'll kind of tell you like it's a spectrum so to speak of like how like kind of a low view versus a high view or a low authority versus high authority. The first one is this artistic ability. This is the claim that those who had a close connection of God simply wrote down how they felt. So this would be like on one side of the pendulum, a kind of a low view, low, low view of this understanding of inspiration or authority that, that, that people just simply said like, you know what, today I'm feeling, I feel very blessed. So I'm gonna write about a blessing that God simply inspired them to write about a blessing or I'm feeling upset or depressed or sad or angry um, and, and, and I'm gonna write about that. I'm gonna write a Psalm or a, or a passage or, or whatever. Or I'm angry at this person in the church or that this church is believing this, so I'm gonna write a response. This artistic ability is simply that, that people wrote down how they felt. Um, if like, there's, I'm gonna give you four options here, by the way. Uh, and then I'm gonna tell you which one I believe and which is consequently which one you are also gonna believe, by the way. Uh, and it is not this one. This is a very low view with low authority and it's sort of like you just kind of write how you feel. A second option um, that has been kind of come up throughout the time, throughout, you know, ages is uh, divine endorsement. This is a little bit more, a little bit more authority than simply, just simply an ability or sort of like, yeah. This is they write it down and then God gives his endorsement. Like, I approve this. Kind of like, like, you know, every time we go through the like, like political season, you'll see ads. And then at the end, like it'll be this whole ad and it'll be usually negative. And at the end, it's like a very chipper person. Like I'm so-and-so and I endorse this message. And you're like, dude, you weren't even in it. Like you didn't say anything. Like, okay. And that's this idea that they write this thing. And then God's like, yep, I endorse what they wrote. Stamp of approval. That is some people's view of inspiration. Um, it too is, uh, is, is wrong. Then there's a, a, a third one, and this jumps all the way to, the, to like the other side, like the pendulum swing, and it's this. It's, we can call it divine dictation. And this is the idea that God literally told them what to write down word for word, and, and they had little say, really no say in it whatsoever. That it was almost like, hey, I'm gonna go ahead and take over your hand and your pen, and, and I'm just gonna, you're gonna write what I want you to write, and that's it. And at, at first glance, and there's some who believe this, but though um, that number is getting smaller and, and it's, it's kind of been seen as like, no, this doesn't, this doesn't accurately describe the process. And, and, and it, it sounds like, oh, that makes sense. Like that's a high view of it, sure. Except, except what you see in scripture is there's so many differences in the books that if this is true, then, then it means a few things about God. First, God seems to be schizophrenic because he has different personalities in different letters and in different, by, that, he, that he gives to different authors. He also, he also is, is not so great at, at, like, at like just language. Because some, some of the books we have, some of the, especially like in the Greek and where it's much more nuanced, we have, we have some, um, some letters that are very, very complicated and intricate. And you can tell this person really has a grasp of their language, of the Greek language. Like, okay, they, they are clearly educated and, and, and are using, like even Paul's making up words. Like, okay, he has a really good understanding of this. And, and, and then there are some that you're like, okay, this, they're clearly much more simple in their understanding or use of the Greek language. 
If it's divine dictation, how can there be a difference if God is just saying, I want you to write this? Unless he literally can't make up his mind if he's really good at, at, like, at languages or not so good at languages. It's like, and it's the same with us, right? You, you and I um, will read, uh, if you'll read a letter from someone who's really, who really understands English and is really well-versed and is a great author, like you'll get a letter, a really well-written letter or email or something, and you're going, ooh, man, that's good. Like, I know all those words. It's not like they're making stuff up, but I can never write like that. Like, what's such eloquence, right? Authors, like you'll get books and you're like, man, it's so riveting because they just know how to use the language. And then we'll get, you know, letters from, you know, an eight-year-old and go, that's more like it. Yeah, that's, that's my style. Like, I appreciate that. That's what we see in Greek. So, so again, divine dictation is a little bit of a problem. And, and we see instances where there very, are very personal, like, um, like a... a uh, personal, like the authors will mention very personal things that are very specific to them. So Paul, I'll just use Paul as an example. There are a number of times in the scriptures where he'll say, it has nothing to do, nothing to do at, at all with anything theological at all. He'll say this, hey, um, when you come, bring my cloak. Like bring my jacket. It's cold here. Did God really write, like, all right, I want you, Paul, I want you to write down, bring my clothes. Oh, Lord, I totally forgot, I forgot. Thank you for reminding me that I need it. And like, he didn't, like, did he really not know? And he was just writing that down? Or he'll say, bring, hey, when you come, bring my parchments and, and, uh, and my writings, especially these ones. Like, it seems to be he has input into what he's writing. That this isn't just, he's not just some kind of mindless robot writing down. So divine dictation takes it too far. So the fourth one, um, the, my understanding and consequently yours is this divine enablement with words. It's often in, uh, in theology referred to as the verbal plenary inspiration. Listen, you, you don't need to memorize that or have that. Like, it's fine, but you need to understand it. But, but if someone, again, if someone asks you, hey, why do you believe the Bible? And you're like, oh, clearly verbal plenary inspiration is why. I, like, don't do that. Don't, don't go that, like that route. But you do have to understand what it means and, and to be able to at least explain it. This view means that, that, that all that is written down, down to the words used, is authored and divine and, and um, not just the ideas behind it, but God breathes specifics into it. But, but it's also the view that he uses the author's background, their vocabulary, their understanding to do it. So God inspires them spe with specifics. It isn't just a general, hey, write something down. Paul, write something down about love. And he's like, oh, okay, all right, I think love is this. He's like, no, no, no. I like, it's very specific in that the Holy Spirit, get, like through their thoughts and their understanding, writes down what he wants them to, but he also uses them and knows, like you're, like, you're gonna use your vocab and your history and your background and your understanding to put down my words. Verbal means word at the word level. Like this is why we do word studies and we'll say this word is in here. Like Paul used this word for a reason. This wasn't just some haphazard like, oh, well, maybe he could have used this word into that. But you know, the words don't really matter. No, no, it really does matter. And plenary means like full or all. So like all of scripture. It isn't just like certain aspects, certain words are divine and other ones aren't. Like God wants all of it. But he uses authors to write it down. So your understanding of this is, uh, is, is really important. So that's, that's you didn't, maybe you didn't have a view before, you do now, you're welcome. I did the work for you, okay? 
you understand that God used, God spoke to people and used their language and their background, their context to, to write down his words. Now, inspiration, okay, that's a whole field and, and there's a lot, there's a lot of agreement. There's some disagreement as to like how most people land in where we land. This idea that God inspired, like this verbal plenary inspiration, use different words for it, but that is most, most evangelical kind of mainline kind of established Orthodox Christians believe that. Now let's talk about the second I of inerrancy. Now is where things start to really divide. And what we see is that if you pick a different branch, now this this idea of inerrancy is another branch that gets you even further away from based on, like based on which branch you choose, like you're further away from potentially other believers or even really the truth. Inerrancy of scripture answers this question, not what is its origin, but what is scripture's truthfulness? How true is it? How accurate is it? In what level? So we ask questions like this, is scripture true in all in all matters, including in scientific matters. Is scripture true as a science book, as a science textbook? Is it fully accurate in its historical details and its chronology? Or is there ever a mistake or error or, a, or, a, or an inaccuracy or misrepresentation? Is it, or is it only true in like the theological and religious matters like salvation or the life of the church? And, and there are throughout the years, plenty of people who land at different spots and, and say, well, it, it's true in these matters, but not these. And, and it's, or it's true in all of them, or it's true in none of them. There was a, a number of years ago, there was a group that got together, a uh, number of, this is, this is decades now, um, but it was really famous. It was a lot of very uh, liberal scholars, liberal theologically and critical who were, Um, who didn't hold to inerrancy, they get together and they do what, they put together what's called the Jesus Seminar. Sounds really great. And they write a book on it and there's been all kinds of books written in response to it. And here's what they did. They got together and they said, we're gonna go through the gospels and given our expertise, because they were all, you know, experts in their, you know, proclaimed experts in their field. They get together and they say, we're going to decide what he really said and what he didn't say. What he really did and what he didn't do. And we know miracles aren't possible. So right out the gate, they got rid of all the miracles, right? So Jesus didn't do any miracles. And he didn't say anything about him, like being him and the father being one, because he wouldn't do that because that's blasphemy. So we're going to take that out. So they literally got black and just sort of blacked it out and put together this sort of, this, this, is, this is the true understanding of the gospels. Now, right away, you, you hear that and you go, that is by definition now, nothing true about the gospels. That's, you, you just edited it to make it, sound and say what you wanted it to. Because they, their view of inerrancy wasn't that it, it had no mistakes or errors, but rather it did. And so we're going to find the things that are true. Inerrancy just simply means without error. So they would say, no, there are errors in the Bible and we're gonna take care of it for you guys. Us, us really wise, smart theologians and scholars will take care of this for you. By which then you know, a number of, of books were written in response and they just got hammered. I mean, hammered you like it's fun to to read and to watch like you know it's it's great for nerds it's like it's like it's like it's like it's like nerd ufc where they just they just battle it out you know through books it's it's fun so your understanding of inerrancy is essential to your to what you believe about the faith 
Biblical inerrancy is the belief that the Bible is without error in, in, or fault in all of its teachings. And here's what we see. That scripture, this is the claim, that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So let's start by talking about what the Bible believes about itself. Does the Bible even claim to be inerrant? Let's look at it. A few, a few passages in Psalms, and then we'll look at one, one particular thing that Jesus says. In Psalm 12, it says this, and the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Psalm 33, this is just but a sample. There's plenty more. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Psalm 119, the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. That it's true and eternal. And then Jesus says this specifically. He says a lot about like the scriptures, um, but he says this in John 17. Sanctify, uh, he's praying this to the Lord. Sanctify them by, your, by the truth. Your word is truth. So the Bible clear, and there's plenty of other passages, the Bible clearly talks about itself, or at least God's words as being truthful and faithful and trustworthy and flawless. So it claims it. Now, let's talk specifics about what that means. Um, and I'll give you some details and some examples as to usually where like people will kind of try and poke holes in this idea of there's no heirs. So the first, some, some specifics about inerrancy. First, the Bible is true in what it affirms. This is important rather than what it reports. Okay, here's what, in other words, like what it says happened is true, not necessarily the thing that happened is true. So let me make a statement and you're gonna go, and then you'll go, oh, that makes sense. Okay, the Bible is full of lies. I didn't hear any gasp. There it is. What? The Bible's full of lies. It starts out in Genesis with a lie. We see Abraham tell a lie. Throughout the scriptures, plenty, there are plenty of falsehoods in the Bible. What the Bible is saying is not everything written down, like every word is true. Rather, the, the retelling of the story of this is what happened is true and accurate. Here's an example. So Abraham, um, Abraham is uh, married to his wife, uh, Sarah, and, uh, and they go to the king and um, he doesn't want to be killed. And the king is you know, interested in this lady. He doesn't know it's Abraham's wife. And Abraham said, and they say, oh, who is this? And he says, oh, that's my sister. You little liar, right? That's not, that's your, I mean, that's your sister, sure, but that is your wife, right? It is a deception. The Bible is not true in, in making that claim that, oh, that really is his, see, he said it was his sister, but it wasn't. And, and so therefore the Bible's a lie. No, 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 no. The Bible is true in its claims about what happened. The what, what, what happened was a lie. Does that make sense? You see the distinction? Okay, uh, we can move on. I think that's pretty clear. Um, uh, the same is true with like uh, in the Garden of Eden, right? And the, and the serpent speaks a lie, lies to, to Eve. And then, right, the, the whole process starts. So there are things that aren't true, but it's because the Bible is saying there aren't, they aren't true. Number two, the Bible is true according to the purpose of its writing. Okay, now this is important. This, like, this is really important. Of all the things... I mean, everything I tell you is important, guys, so you should, you know, listen up. But this, this is really important because this gets us in a lot of trouble. The Bible is true according to the purpose of its writing. So a lot of people will say this, the Bible 
listen, this is the greatest science textbook we have. We say, wait, listen, this is, this, this tells us everything we need to know about science. In which the Bible says, no, this is not a science textbook. Though it does have science in here, absolutely. You know what? This is the greatest archaeological book that you can ever get. Well, well, no, it doesn't claim to be an archaeological book, though there's certainly archaeology in it. You know, if, if we really want to figure out the cognitive development of teenagers, this really is the source. <laughs> and you go, no, it doesn't claim to be the authority on the cognitive development of teenagers, though it talks about parenting and like what, they, what it should be. And what we do is we assign like whatever we want to say, this is the greatest, like this is the epitome of that thing. And what we do is a disservice to this and ourselves because it doesn't claim those things. What it do, in what it does claim, it's true, but not in everything that it, like, it's not true. So let me give you an example. Um, um, in mathematics, this is where the Bible, a lot of critics will just, be, will just hammer, try and hammer the Bible, and it's just like, it's totally just a, a, like a, seems like a silly exercise. They'll say, the Bible lies about the numbers. It's inaccurate about its numbers, so how can any of it be true? Here's an example. They'll, uh, we'll just use a, a round number, an easy example. King David had 10,000 men in his army. Okay, they'll look at that and say, really? I mean, to the number, 10,000? How do you get 10,000 exactly? How, how come it's not 10,004 or 9,962? 10,000, really? If we can prove that it wasn't 10,000, that it was a different number, if we can, then we can prove the Bible wrong. And what they're doing is just simply like not understanding the point of that passage isn't. It isn't. Here's the exact number. Here's an example. Okay, ready? We do this all the time. We round up. And the Bible does this. It uses round numbers. It's not going to count every single person, but say he had 10,000 men at his disposal or chariots or whatever. Okay, uh, I want you to do this with your neighbor. Go ahead and share your yearly salary with your neighbor right now. Go. <laughs> Anyone? Anyone? No takers? No takers? Now, here's the deal. Whatever your salary is, whatever that number is, and please don't share that, by the way. That was like, I made you a little uncomfortable, didn't right there a little bit? Um, here's the deal. Uh, if you write this down on, you know, filling out a credit card or application, or even if you have a conversation with someone and you are, you know, you do need to share maybe for work stuff, you'll use round numbers. So whatever you, will just use a round number. Maybe you make 100,000, maybe you make 80,000, maybe you make 60,000, whatever the number is. Listen, you don't make that much money. The number you report to the IRS is some crazy funky number that like your tax person gives you like, this is how much you made. And you're like, I don't even know how much I made, but it's, it's not 100,000, it's $101,284.27 or whatever. And you're like, you liar. <laughs> you little, how can you say you made $100,000 or you made $80,000? That was not at all the number. All right, you hear that and you go, that's absurd. You know, I was rounding. Like it's just simply for the point of communication. The Bible does that a lot. And it will just round for the point of communication because it's not trying to be a math book. So the Bible is true according to the purpose of its writing. Not necessarily in every single detail because it's not trying to give you every detail. We, we get into trouble because we try to make the Bible say things that it simply just doesn't claim to say. Here's the next one. The Bible is true from the perspective of the author. Sometimes the author doesn't know what they're, what they're seeing or if it's a vision or what they're hearing. They're hearing from the Lord, but they're, I don't know what this means. And they try to use the words that they have to describe something that they don't understand. 
and that they honestly can't comprehend. We see this, here's an example. We see this in, in, uh, in Revelation. In, John's writing down a future event of some worldwide right, cal- calamity and like, okay, Lord, I, this is too much. I don't even know what I'm seeing. And he writes stuff down using his first century understanding and his first century language. And some of the things he writes down, he simply cannot comprehend. So an example, um, there are many who will translate a specific, or interpret a, cer- a specific passage. And I'm not even sold on this, but it's, it's, a, it's a fair understanding. And I, I, it, I, I, it could very well be true. But he talks about giant locusts who target only certain people. And that these locusts had iron breastplates and they had hair and that, and that they, they made the sound of chariots and horses going to war, like it shook the ground. And that these, these locusts had, a, had, had stingers on their tail like scorpions. All right, he's describing something you're going, okay, really, dude? Are you sure? But listen, it very well may be that what he's describing is a military helicopter. And he has no clue what that is. He has no idea. He's looking at a world at war and all these potentially helicopters come in and he says they're giant locusts, but they're iron. And, and, uh, and they, the, the sound they make shakes the ground like horses and their tail has this thing. It looks like a stinger. And so he's describing this creature and you're going, what is that? And, and, and you and I, you and I have this vision. We're like, oh, that's a Black Hawk helicopter. Duh. John, how do you not know? He's like, I don't even what does that even mean? I don't know those words. So, so the Bible isn't wrong because he didn't understand what he's looking at. He's writing down in his words what he understands. Another example, um, he's, there's a, in Revelation, it talks about stars falling to the earth. He doesn't know what a star is. He's, here's what he knows. There are lights up there and they fell down here. And there's a few interpretations. It follows an earthquake. It's very well could be a couple things. Some will say um, this is a world at war and these are missiles and he sees lights coming down and falling. Or this could be volcanic explosions because it follows an, a, an earthquake and he's seeing, he's seeing a volcano. He doesn't know what that is. He's never seen a volcanic eruption. And now all these like things are falling out of the sky. It could be asteroids. It's all this stuff that he's, I don't know what this is. Here's what I know. They're stars that came down to the earth. All right. Is he lying? No, not at all. Is the Bible wrong because it simply doesn't, he doesn't like have an accurate understanding of scientific like observation? No, not at all. So the Bible is true from the perspective of the author. And sometimes they simply just don't, they don't know what they're seeing or even what they're hearing. They're writing it down. Uh, Daniel is famous for doing this. He's writing it down and he goes, I don't know what this means. And like, it, it bothered me. I rose, God told me all this stuff and I have, no, I have no clue what any of this means. So what does this matter? As we talk about inerrancy and specifically how the Bible is inerrant and why we believe in it. Let's look at three issues and then we'll wrap up. Here it is. First, this, this issue matters on a philosophical level. There's a philosophical importance to this. Here it is, Ready? If the Bible, if we, if we get rid of, of inerrancy and we think that there are, we acknowledge that there are errors or mistakes in what it says and that it is simply wrong in certain passages, then an error found in any part of it means we can't trust any of it. An error found in just any part of it means there could be an error in any of it. So philosophically, how do we know this to be true? It's only true if God really is faithful like he says, and he really does write down what is true, and he communicates what is right and true and flawless and trustworthy. As soon as, if we get rid of that, 
If any, of the part, any part of the Bible contains errors, it negates its truthfulness, and how can we believe anything it says? So at a philosophical, just understanding level, inerrancy is essential. There's a theological importance. God's character naturally leads to affecting his word in such a way that nothing faulty enters the final product. That God himself says, I am faithful and I am true and I am just and I am eternal and I am right. So when I want to communicate my word, we're saying, okay, Lord, you are both omniscient, all-knowing and omnipotent, all-powerful. You can, you are able to communicate in a way that is flawless and you know, you know how to do that. So it only follows that you did that. To get rid of inerrancy is, a, is honestly an attack on God's character that he cannot or will not communicate something fully truthful, that he'll allow for errors. And then there's a historical importance, and this is where we'll just land a little bit. Historically, the do- when the doctrine of inerrancy is abandoned, so are the rest of the Christian doctrines. It seems to be the first domino by which the rest of Christianity seems to be abandoned. Um, I don't know if you know this or realize this, uh, all of the Ivy League schools, so, you know, Duke, Yale, uh, Princeton, all that. Um, you know, all of them, every one of them started as a seminary to train pastors. You go there now, and it's far from it. I'll just give you a guess. Just take a guess at the, fr- at, at the doctrinal position that changed first. Any idea? Any takers? Any takers? The doctrine of inerrancy was the first one that kind of let go of and said, man, maybe it's not all truthful. Maybe there really are some errors in here. And what happens over time, well, if there are errors, then maybe this isn't true, then, then this isn't true, and we'll abandon this. And it gets to a point now where it isn't just like not like recognizable as Christianity, it's hostile towards Christianity. This thing that started as, a, as literally like training pastors and missionaries now is far from it. And it's because this first domino that they let go of inerrancy. Miller Erickson, he says this in uh, Introducing Christian Doctrine, there is evidence that where a theologian, a school, or a movement begins by regarding biblical inerrancy as a peripheral or optional matter and abandons this doctrine, where it looks at inerrancy and says, hey, it's not essential in what we believe, it frequently then goes on to abandon or alter other doctrines that the church has ordinarily considered quite major, such as the deity of Christ or the Trinity. This is true in denominations. We see this even currently in denominations that, that don't hold to inerrancy and then they start to slide over and slide over and change a little bit. And well, we don't believe that. And that was a first century thing, but we're 21st century. And so, and, and as, soon as, you, as soon as you move or budge on inerrancy, the rest of your faith crumbles. So is this important? Oof. We could say this, to sacrifice inerrancy is to sacrifice the faith. God's word, we could say, here it is, summary. God's word is trustworthy and true. And as soon as you or I or anyone, or anyone lets go of that understanding of the scripture, it's, a, it's just a matter of time before the rest falls away. Now, I, I, I would never have thought that, this, that that's a controversial statement. That I believe, I personally, I believe wholeheartedly in the inspiration and the inerrancy of scripture. And I, I've been in ministry now for a number of decades, and I still am shocked, friends of mine who can't say that. 
other churches I know that, would, that could not sign that in their statement of faith. And I'm going, this seems so like elementary and foundational. And like, this is so basic and important. How can you, uh, how can you, how can you let that go? I can tell you this. So for, for our church, uh, you know, you're in this church and, you know, you, maybe you've been here for a while or maybe you're just checking it out and you're like, I want to see kind of what they believe. Let me just be clear, okay? Ready? Here we go. Ready? We believe. I believe, and consequently, you also have to believe, if, only if you want to be right, <laughs> that the Bible is inspired by God, written to people. And it is, it is, this is trustworthy and true. This is God's word. And it is inerrant in its original. Like in, in the language that they wrote down, it is without error or mistake or inaccuracy or fault. Or it's like, like, this is it. We have it. This is God's word and it's true. Not because I say it, but because as we look through this, they're like, all right, Lord, this really is your word. So if you attend New Hope, I know not every church can say this, we fully, wholeheartedly believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. And we'll never sacrifice it. At, at least, let me, let me say this. I will never sacrifice it. Now, we have a, a board here, and if they come to me one day in my office, they say, hey, we got to have a talk. I say, okay, guys, let's go. And they say, hey, we're not so sure about this inerrancy thing. I would say, well, then we have one of two options. Either you guys step down or I step down. That, this is that big of an issue. Now, thankfully, like none of them will ever do that because they're all on board too. But like th this is that big of an issue. Now, there are other churches that you could go to and if you had conversations with, you know, they won't come out and say, oh, we don't believe in inerrancy. But if you, listen, I, I don't assume you'll go attend this, this church forever. There may be a time where you move or, or, you know, I say something or wear a shirt you don't like and you're like, I'm out. And, <laughs> and, and you go to another church. All right. Great, wonderful. That's wonderful. Find a church. But if, listen, if that church doesn't hold to inerrancy, listen, Uncle Brandon is telling you, you find another church. They may be nice people. It may be wonderful. But this is that essential. Do you understand? Okay. So if, if I ever hear you leave and you go, that's just fine. You can go. I mean, please don't. But, but if you leave and you go to a church and I'm like, what are you doing? I will, drive, I will find your address, I will drive to your house, and I will tell you, this is not something you want to sacrifice. New Hope Church, myself, and you know, everyone who goes here, at least I hope, we believe that God's word is trustworthy and true. It is inspired by God and inerrant. Ha, have I been clear? Okay, good, good. We, you can clap for that. You know what's... What's so, what's so funny is that we even have to do that because there are people and pastors and churches who don't hold to that standard and it, it hurts me and like I've been, have, I have friends and been in conversation. I'm like, man, oh, I just wish you would stop being wrong, you know? <laughs> so for us, as we wrap up, God's word really is trustworthy and true. Would you do this? Would you stand with me as we pray and then worship the Lord together? So Lord, we recognize this is your word. Not because we say it or we claim it or we want it to be, but, but really, Lord, 
through the Holy Spirit, you really did breathe and inspire people to write down what you wanted them to write down. And you did so so that we could know you. Help us to stand firm on the truth of your scripture and the inerrancy of your scripture that we, that we, Lord, may look at your word not as just a a good book that has good ideas, but it really is life-changing. And what it claims to be true, it really is true. We love you, Lord, and we thank you.